pray together. Father, we thank you. I, I thank you for the, the trials and the brokenness, the different things of life that remind us continually of our need for you. Uh, I thank you that we can go through this together. I thank you for your word. What a privilege and honor it is to be able to engage with your word and prayerfully to know you better, love you more, hear from you. And so, Father, we ask you to speak to us through your word. We come under your word and ask that you would illumine our hearts and, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're able, I'd ask you one more time to stand for the reading of God's word, which is Romans chapter 3. We're continuing for a couple more weeks this section uh, of Romans from the beginning of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. And this morning I'm reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So friends, hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in, hu in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to make a rather bold thesis. Maybe you're sitting there and you aren't thinking this will be so bold. I don't know. But I'm going to say I'm going to make a rather bold thesis. The problem of justification is the problem of life. Listen to me. The problem of justification is the problem of life. And it's not just a theological problem. Yes, at its root, at its core, it's a theological problem. But it's, a, it's also the problem that causes breakdowns in every area of life. Breakdown with God, breakdown within ourselves, breakdown in our interpersonal relationships. In other words, this fundamentally at root theological problem has far-reaching tentacles that reach across all areas of life. Let me just have us go back to the passage of script, scripture we read earlier in our liturgy with the confession of sin. Listen to what James says when he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. James here is talking about breakdowns in interpersonal relationships within the church, fights and quarrels. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a breakdown in relationship. And they even occur within the church. And he goes on to say, what causes them? And he says, it is your passions, your desires that are at war within you. And what is your fundamental passion? The real passion. 
may I suggest that the passion, the desire, at root of everything else is that of self-justification. You're being right. You're being okay. However we may define that, and we may have a ton of different ways of defining that. I'm right. My worth is proven if I'm successful in my job. Or I'm right if my family is healthy. Or I'm right if I hold the right position, whatever that might be, doctrinal, political, or whatever. But the fundamental root cause is the same. Self-justification, proving ourselves, proving our worth, vindicating ourselves in some way, shape, or form. To use the biblical theological term, it is the term blessing. It is to be blessed. Like Jacob in the Old Testament, who was renamed Israel, when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night, what did he fight for? He fought for the blessing. And all you have to do to see this is to see how we typically respond when we're challenged about something, when we're questioned about something. See, think about this. What is your typical reaction when you're questioned about something? It's usually not, oh, thank you for pointing that out to me. I am just, you made my day. Thank, thank you for showing me what a terrible wretch I really am and how it impacts you relationally. I'm thrilled. You are God's messenger in my life, right? That's why confession and repentance, you have to know it's a supernatural grace. It's just not naturally how we respond. And what is behind all that? See, typically what happens, somebody challenges or questions us, and what happens? We attack. We fight back. We make accusations. And behind those accusations, self-justification. You're proving your own vindication, whatever that might look like. Friends, that's exactly what we see going on here in this passage in Romans chapter 3. Interpreters, commentators call this one of the most difficult passages to interpret. So you know what I tried to do with it this morning? See, here are commentators, and I'm reading several of them that talk about how difficult a passage this is. I go, let me try to give the simplest outline I can in terms of doing this. So you ready? You ready to take notes? Simple outline, two points. Problem, solution. <laughs> this would be the one sermon you want to have anybody test you on. What was the sermon about this morning? Problem, solution, and Jeff has bad allergies. I, I got it. Okay? So problem and solution. Let's look at the... And you ever know, it's like every sermon. Bad news, good news. So this is going to... Funny, that's the gospel, isn't it? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. And verses 1 and 2 begin, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul responds, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, like I've said, every sermon, every part of this section, we have to remember the overall context of this, which began in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And here's Paul's fundamental argument. He's saying all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, which summarizes the entire human race. If Paul were writing this letter today, he would say all seven billion of you are in the same boat. That is the same objective position before God. 
Now, he will state it directly what that position is, and we'll look at it next week in verse 9 when he says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the conclusion of his argument. The way he's broken it down is he begins with the Gentiles, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and he says it's easy enough to see. He says Gentiles are under the wrath of God, and this judgment is on display, and it's easy to see. It's through their immorality, their sexuality, their paganism. It's easy to see what life looks like disassociated from God. And you could just see the, the good Israelite, okay? And don't think ethnicity, nationality at that point. What you need to be thinking is elect people of God, chosen people of God, the religious people of the day. They're sitting there at end of chapter one and going, yeah, that's, good job, Paul. That's it. Those people. They're the problems over there. What does Paul do in the beginning of chapter 2? He says, therefore, you have no excuse. Wait a second. What are you doing, Paul? Turning the tables? I'm not so comfortable. And that's what he begins to do through chapter 2. So so that now when you get to chapter 3 and you get someone being challenged, being questioned, being told, wait a second, you're not such hot stuff afterwards. You do things like, are judgmental, think evil of others, what begins is the self-justification. And in these eight eight verses, Paul is dealing with a series of objections to his doctrine. He's having a conversation, whether it's himself just putting forward what potential objections might be, or an actual conversation with with an objector, we don't know. But what he's basically doing is dealing with objections to his basic position in argument. So verse 1 is, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Someone basically saying, again, in order to justify themselves, well, if I'm in the same boat as those dirty, rotten Gentiles over there, then what is it worth it to have my Jewish background? Why have, I listened to the scripture reading Al read. Has such a nation as this been entrusted with the very words of God? I've been trying to follow the words of God. What advantage is there to me being Jewish? To having things like circumcision, the symbol of my identity. Why bother? And Paul, answering that objection, probably pretty much surprises him with the answer. He says, much in every way. He says, even though you're not immune to judgment because of your heritage, there is much to your heritage and background. He says, you have many privileges, privileges that have not been revoked. You still have these privileges, like you've been entrusted with the very oracles of God. The word of God has been entrusted to you. The story of God has been entrusted to you to embody and to carry to the world. You are part of a people that is called to be a light to the nations. Now let me try to apply this. Let me make sure we understand what's going on and try to give a more contemporary, current application. And I need you to be honest with yourselves on this. See, you know, we might be going, so what advantage is it to be Jewish? I don't know. Circumcision, don't relate to that one. All of these types of things you're thinking. Well, here's what's going on. I want you to picture something that because this type of self-justifying goes on all the time. Doesn't this sound like, eerily like, many of the arguments we have with, um, say, our spouse? 
Think about this. Have you ever had a conversation that goes something like this? Your spouse says to you, I wish you would be more sensitive. I wish you would listen more. I would be more submissive if you took more leadership in the home. I wish you would, and it could go both ways, okay? And how do you respond? You're right, honey. (laughs) Thank you so much for pointing out everything I do. Or do you respond something like this? And if you're walking in the flesh, maybe it comes out, and if you think you're walking in the spirit, but you're really not, you just stuff it in, and it doesn't come out. Do you sit there and say, well, look at everything I do. Do you not see how hard I'm working around here? Do you not see everything I'm doing? Why do I, and then you walk away, why do I even bother? Why do I even try? Of what advantage is it to be a husband who's dying for his wife? Why even bother? See where the self-justification goes? Here he is saying, I've been entrusted with the oracles of God. He's going, what's the point? If I'm under judgment too, why bother having my Jewish background? But he doesn't give up. The attack goes further. Look with me at verse 3. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You hear what he's doing here? He's attacking God, saying, God, are you faithful? He's saying, does their sin, does their faithlessness cross out, nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul answers, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he quotes from Psalm 51. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But then here comes our objector again in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteousness, unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul responds, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? In other words, if I'm a sinner and going to be condemned anyway, and that brings about the glory of God, well, eat, drink, and be merry. I might as well do whatever I want. I'll do evil that good may come. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just... Now, what is the basic objection that is being raised? Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? In other words, okay, what if we have sinned? Then does our sin, our unfaithfulness, our failure nullify the faithfulness of God? See, obviously, this objector is taking a position opposite to Paul's. He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? One commentator summed it up, I thought, very well when he said, the Jewish objector here is wondering, how can God be righteous when he judges the sins of the Jews? And he says, Paul seems to be grappling here with the common Jewish belief that God's righteousness, his covenant faithfulness, gave the Jews virtual immunity from judgment. And in response, Paul affirms that the marvelous blessing of knowing God's word is a double-edged sword. For God's word promises blessings for obedience, but it also warns about the curse that comes and falls on disobedience. 
God remains faithful and righteous in all his dealings, but Jews must understand that the ultimate standard of righteousness is God's own holy character, and it is with that holy character that requires him to respond to sin with wrath. What is the basic misunderstanding of this objector here? The nature of the covenant. The nature of God's faithfulness. The nature of God's dealings and workings. He does not understand what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. And that it means, by definition, both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. See, we need to understand that blessing and cursing is not circumstantial or subjective. It's not about how my life is going. It is an objective and legal standard. You are either under the blessing, which means under the favor of God, or the cursing, which means outside the favor of God. It's a position and it's a condition. And so Paul's basic position here, this is the fundamental thing, and this is the problem, is God is faithful even when punishing the sins of his people, because this is what it means for God to be faithful to his covenant. This is what it means for God to be faithful to his word. It's a double-edged sword. It means blessing upon the obedient and cursing on the disobedient. Which, of course, leaves us, may I say, in a bit of a pickle. Because which side do we fall on naturally? And this is the point Paul is making in Romans 1-3. to Everyone, all religious, irreligious, pagan, good upstanding Christian, whatever, Gentile, Jewish person, you're in the same boat. You're in a covenant relationship with God, and the terms of that covenant is blessings for obedience and curse for disobedience. And which side do we fall on? So we have a problem. So what is the solution? Paul's going to spend, and this is what, and you're going to want to come back as we unfold this series, because we're going to finish this section next week, and then we're going to take a little break, moving into like Easter season and all of that kind of stuff. And then when we come back to this, we're going to look at the section that goes from chapters 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 5. That is really the central point of Paul's argument, and it's the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. But the foundation of that is how God deals covenantally with his people. So what is the solution? Again, listen to how Douglas Moo, the commentator, puts it. He says, the gospel in no way cancels Israel's prerogatives. But Paul insists we must rightly understand those prerogatives. Being entrusted with God's word has never meant that Israel is immune from judgment. In fact, that very word promises judgment for disobedience. That's the problem. But here's how Paul is thinking. Moo writes, such a judgment, in Paul's view, has now already taken place. That God has brought his covenantal cursings down on Israel and in keeping with the prophetic voices within the Old Testament itself, the Old Covenant needs to be replaced with the New One. We read last this, this last week, and I'll read it again now, one of those 
prominent prophetic voices is the prophet Jeremiah who said, behold, the days are coming. Think about this. So as Jeremiah is speaking the word of the Lord, he's saying, look future, look forward. The days are coming. I want you to anticipate this. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And friends, how is this covenant, this new covenant fulfilled? Blessings on the obedient, curses on the disobedient, In perhaps Paul's parallel letter to Romans, the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Apparently in Paul's mind, judgment has taken place and there are three Israels. There's the national Israel of the Old Testament There is Jesus, the true Israel, and then there's this reimagined Israel, this fulfilled Israel made up of Jesus and his seed, the people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles together, and based on the foundation of God's covenant. In the cross, the new covenant was the curses of the covenant fell on Jesus. He absorbed them in the cross so that the blessings of the covenant could fall on God's people who are in Christ. John Stott, in what I think is one of the greatest books on the cross ever written, the cross of Christ, says of these verses in Galatians, he says, so now what does the cross mean? He says, these verses constitute one of the clearest expositions of the necessity, meaning, and consequences of the cross. Paul expresses himself in such stark terms that some commentators have not been able to accept what he says. Nevertheless, Paul meant every word of it, so we have to come to terms with it. God is faithful, and he's faithful to how he works. He's faithful to his covenant. He took Israel's curse. See, think about what this text tells us about God's solution. Paul points out that in the Old Testament, and he's quoting here Deuteronomy chapter 21, that when someone was executed for covenant breaking, to show that the execution was not just capital punishment, but was a covenantal curse, that person was publicly hung on a tree for all to see. It was a form of shame and a form of mocking, and Paul, of course, is liking that to Christ. Christ was hung on a tree because he took on the curse. He received or got a terrible punishment that was much more than just physical pain. And he took it. See, this is what Paul is alluding to in the covenant faithfulness of God that he's bringing up here in Romans chapter 3. The doctrine and the principle of substitution. He's saying, this is how the covenant works. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And you, my people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all disobedient. So you need someone to be your people, my people, in your 
place. Not as a teacher, not as an inspiration, as a substitute. And Jesus became that person. Jesus was that substitute. And see, we need to understand what the cross represents, that the curse is always the loss of relationship. I love how Tim Keller puts this, commenting on these verses. He says, and now you know what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, see, Jesus Christ, his curse was not just the hole in his hands, but the hole in his heart where God used to be. It says, the level of pain and the loss of relationship will completely depend on the level of the relationship. He writes, when an acquaintance says, I hate you, it doesn't hurt as bad as when a friend says, I hate you. That doesn't hurt as bad as when your best friend says, I hate you. That doesn't hurt as bad as when your parents say, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as bad as when your spouse says, I hate you. And he says, don't you see? When you plumb the depths and get into the relationship between the father and the son, you are way beyond even your own imagination. This is far worse than any physical pain. And he continues, he says, if this is true, that he became sin, he became a curse, then you get the blessing. And he says, that is more than forgiveness. And he says, how do you get the blessing? The cross. Jesus not getting cursed, but becoming a curse. Because his becoming a curse demonstrates the doctrine of substitution. Jesus became sin so you could become the righteousness of God. That means the minute you become a Christian, you don't just get forgiveness, you get treated as if you were him. Jesus gets treated as if he were you, and you get treated as if you were him. If we understood that, why would we ever seek to justify ourselves? When we are justifying ourselves, proving our own worth, trying to vindicate ourselves, trying to validate ourselves, prove we're okay, we are functionally denying the justification of God through Jesus Christ. I know we're not theologically doing that, but that's what we're expressing in how we relate. Do we not understand what it means? This was the blessing that Jacob was searching for and why he was, rena was renamed Israel. Wrestled, grappled with God and prevailed. And the true Israel is Jesus Christ who went through the ultimate wrestling match on our behalf in our place as our substitute. Wrestled with God on the cross and was forsaken, was abandoned was cursed, became a curse, so that we could be treated by God. Do we even begin to understand what it means that God treats you, deals with you, looks at you, relates to you, as if you were Jesus? As if that beauty was across your face. As if that obedience was yours. That's what it means, and that's where the letter to the Romans is going. When the righteousness of Christ is counted as yours, it's your possession. We have to learn to possess it in how we relate to others to express that fruit. That's why understanding the gospel is the goal of our life. 
It's our aim. It's what we're doing, is learning to understand the glorious news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this teaching. So easily misunderstood then by the irreligious and the religious, so easily misunderstood today. Help us to understand the glorious principle and doctrine of substitution to begin to apply it more and more into our lives, to apply the gospel to our failures, to apply the gospel to how we relate, to apply the gospel to how we see ourselves and how we see others. In Jesus' name, amen.